Today on Lessons for Living, the teaching ministry of Mark Ballmer, Senior Pastor of Calvary Chapel, Melbourne in Melbourne, Florida. Now, knowing he was a member of the Sanhedrin, would there be any trouble with him going and asking boldly for the body of Jesus Christ from the other Sanhedrin members? Oh, there'd be some problems here. But why now? Somehow the cross had a tremendous effect on this guy. I don't know what it was, but the cross should have a great effect on us. Remember, Paul comes in 2 Corinthians, he says, I only come to you and I'm only just going to preach you the cross. Because the cross is the thing that has effect in people's life. When you're going through it, both physical and emotional pain is intense and difficult. But when you reflect on a time when you experienced physical pain and a time when you went through an emotional trauma, which seems worse? Many people might say the emotional pain. There's nothing like a broken heart. The body heals, but some deep emotional wounds never fully go away. As Pastor Mark will show us today, Jesus experienced tremendous bodily torture on the cross. But nothing could compare to knowing that he was about to be separated from his father. But he went through with his sacrifice in order to save us from that separation. Remember, there's quite a few ways to receive a copy of Pastor Mark's teaching. We'll be sharing all that information with you at the close of today's broadcast. Now, here's Pastor Mark in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 15, verse 9, with the conclusion of our message entitled, The Agony of Love. Enable your servants to speak your word with what? Great boldness. And stretch out your hand to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant Jesus. That's the kind of people God wants. People that are filled with the Spirit. We're bold. We're not rude and crude with people. We're bold. And that boldness comes, as you know, Jesus said, you wait in Jerusalem until you're endued with power. And I comes from the baptism of the Holy Spirit, comes from the Spirit-filled life. And the, the evidence of the Spirit-filled life, the greatest evidence, is love. 1 Corinthians 13. Love for the lost. Love for God. All right, let's head back to Mark. So these people, Pilate asked all these people, Mark 15, 9, well, what do you want me to do here? Here's what they said. Pilate says, do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews, knowing it was out of envy that the chief priest had handed Jesus over to him? So see, all along, what he's believing is going to happen is this, that he thinks Jesus is so popular with many of the average people, they're going to speak up and yell for Jesus. He's going to get out of making a decision he doesn't want to make by offering Barabbas who's a you know murderer and whatever, you take Barabbas and you take Jesus, and there should be enough Jesus lovers, he's going to say what? They're going to vote for who? Jesus. So I'm off the hook. So he says this, but it looks in verse 11, we have some people in the background. Religion always stirs things up. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. So jealousy resulted in pride, and the chief priests stir up the people. What shall then I do with... The one you call the king of the Jews. Pilate asked them, 
And if you've been in church at least two Easter's, you've probably heard a pastor teach from that verse. What shall then I do with the one you call King of the Jews? That is the most important question you can ever respond to. What am I personally going to do with Jesus Christ? Religion hides that. In the temple, the curtain was torn from bottom to top. Top to bottom. Showing that man could not save himself. See, religion says, I I can be right with God. No, you can't be right with God by your works. You must come only through Jesus Christ. That's the only way to God. You don't need a priest. You don't need a pastor. You don't need a minister. You don't need a pope. You, you don't need an apostle. You need Jesus Christ. And we come boldly, directly to the throne. Maybe there's some of you here who haven't made a decision for Jesus Christ. What are you going to do with Jesus Christ? You see, if you don't respond to Jesus Christ, you're left with the two things that sin always causes. And those are death Eternal and physical, and separation from God, which is hell. You don't want that. You must determine. The last barrier that has to come down in your life is the barrier in your heart. You must open the door. God will not force his way into your life. You must choose. So this is a great statement. Remember, 1 John 5, 12 says, He who has the Son has life. He who doesn't have the Son doesn't have life. Always choose life. Well, the response in verse 13 was this. Crucify him. They shouted, why? What crime has he committed? Asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. And here we have wishy-washy again. Verse 15. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, afraid of an insurrection, a riot, Pilate released Barabbas to them. So what really happens there is he has a conscience, he knows what he's doing is wrong. But he does it anyway. It's a dangerous place to be in compromising, when you know it's right. It's one of the two sins we talked about this morning. You know, the sin of missing the mark, trying to do well, but missing it. But the other sin was transgression, where you absolutely know you shouldn't be doing it, but you do it anyway. That's what he's doing. Because of time, I won't, I'll just read you from Matthew 27. Here's how Pilate tries to solve this when he knows he's done wrong. And it says this, When Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that instead an uproar was starting, he took water, washed his hands in front of the crowd, and said, I'm innocent of this man's blood. He said, it's your responsibility. See, this is always man. I want to blame somebody else. Pilate should have stood for the truth, but he didn't. And he had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. We know what this flogging was. We'll talk a little more about it later. And the soldiers led Jesus away into the palace, that is the praetorium, and called together the whole company of soldiers. And they put a purple robe on him, then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. Where did thorns come from? Genesis 3.17. Because of sin, to Adam, God said, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree which I commanded you, You must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. And it will produce thorns and thistles for you. And you will eat of the plants of the field. Sin has long-term effects. The thorns that came because of sin were placed on Jesus. 
And they began in verse 18 to call on him, Hail, King of the Jews. And again and again they struck him on the head and with a staff and spitting on him and falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. When they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put his, put his own clothes on him and they led him out to crucify him. That's a fulfilled prophecy of Isaiah 50, verse 6, which says, I offered my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting. Now you remember in verse 20, they took him out to crucify him. Let me just give you a few moments of crucifixion. We won't go on through the scourging and so forth. This is from Dr. Mark Eastman, who's a, a physician who's written from a physician's look at the crucifixion. One of the Calvary Chapel, actually one of the Calvary Chapel uh, pastors and a physician out in California. Crucifixion was invented by the Persians around 300 to 400 B.C. It was perfected by the Romans in the first century B.C. It was arguably the most painful death ever invented by man and is where we get our term excruciating. It was reserved primarily for the most vicious of criminals. The most common device used for crucifixion was a wooden cross, which usually consisted of an upright pole permanently fixed in the ground with a removable crossbar, which weighed about 100 pounds. Victims of crucifixion were typically stripped naked and clothing divided by the Roman guards. As a gesture of Roman kindness, the prisoner was usually offered a mixture of vinegar, gall, and wine as a mild anesthetic. The anesthetic was refused by Jesus. You remember we told you that he wanted to remain fully lucid through all of that so that he could also give his life and know what he was actually doing. The victim was then placed on his back, arms stretched out and nails to the crossbar. The nails, which were generally about seven to nine inches long, were placed between the bones of the forearm, the radius and the ulna, and the small bones of the hand, the carpal, the carpal or the carpal tunnel bones, as you're used to. The placement of the nail at this point had several effects. First, it ensued that the victim would indeed hang there until dead. In other words, it's firm. Second, a nail was placed at this point that would sever the largest nerve in our hand called the median nerve. The severing of this nerve is a medical catastrophe. In addition to the severe burning pain, the destruction of this nerve causes permanent paralysis of the hand. Furthermore, by the nailing of the the victim at this point in the wrist, there would be minimal bleeding and no bones would be broken, which also fulfilled Psalm 22 as you go through it this week, that there would be no bones, and also Psalm 34. No bones broken. The position of the feet is probably the most crucial part of the mechanics of the crucifixion. First, the knees were flexed about 45 degrees and the feet were flexed, bent downward with an additional 45 until they were parallel to the vertical pole. An iron nail of about 7 to 9 inches long was driven through the feet, the two feet between the second and third metatarsal bones. In this position, the nail would sever the dorsal pedal artery of the foot, but cause the resultant bleeding would be insufficient to cause death. The resulting position of the cross set up a horrific sequence of events which results in slow, painful death. With the knees flexed at that particular point, and I'll just skip some of the medical things of this, it was impossible to take a stand for longer than five minutes. As a result of this, the strength of the legs would give out and the weight of the body must be borne by the arms and shoulders. In a few minutes, because of this, the cross, the shoulders would automatically become dislocated. Minutes later, the elbows and the wrists became dislocated. The result of these dislocations is that the arms are as much as six to nine inches longer than normal. With the arms dislocated, considerable body weight is transferred to the chest, causing the ribcage to be elevated in a state of perpetual inhalation. Consequently, to exhale, the victim must push down on his feet to allow the rib muscles to relax. 
The problem is that the victim cannot push very long because the legs are extremely fatigued. As time goes on, the victim is less and less able to do that. The result of this process is a severe, is a series of catastrophic physiological effects because the victim cannot maintain adequate ventilation of the lungs. The blood oxygen level begins to diminish. Carbon dioxide levels begin to rise. The rising C2 levels stimulate the heart to beat faster in order to increase the oxygen and the removal of CO2. However, due to the pinning of the victim and the limitations of oxygen delivery, the victim cannot deliver more oxygen. If you ever lost your breath and can't get your breath, that's the feeling constantly while you're being crucified. And this process sets a vicious cycle of increasing oxygen demand, which cannot be met, and increasing, increasing, increasing heart rate. After several hours, the heart begins to fail. The lungs collapse, fill up with fluid, which further decreases oxygen delivery. The blood loss and hyperventilation combines to come to severe dehydration. That's why Jesus said, I thirst. Over a period of several hours, a combination of collapsing lungs, failing heart, dehydration, ability to get oxygen cause the eventual death of the victim. The victim, in effect, cannot breathe properly and slowly suffocates to death. In severe cases, the victim's heart can even burst, which is called cardiac rupture, which is indeed what Jesus did when he died of a broken heart. Now, you know that Jesus, when he died, he died and he said, as we taught you this morning, it is finished. And he gave of his life earlier than normally would have taken place. This could have gone for two or three days. Now, this is horrible as we look at this and think about this tonight. But remember, it wasn't really the physical that was the agony to Jesus. What was the agony was that he took on your sin and he took on my sin. And as we told you, sin always separates. And for the very first time since the foundation of the worlds, God could not look on Jesus. That was the agony that he experienced. Now to verse 40. Now some women were watching from a distance, and among them were Mary Magdalene, mother, Mary the mother of James the younger, and of Joses and Salome. So in the onlookers, at the time that Jesus died, you remember there's plenty of people that mocked. The Jewish leaders were there to make sure he was dead, because they wanted to make sure of this, because they knew this was going to bring them their old religion, their old dead religion back. Just a thing to me that all the disciples were gone except for John, because remember Jesus looked down at his mother and he said, John, take care of my mother. Where were all the other men, fearful and hiding? I thought of that. When I was raised, you remember my dad was a pastor and even my grandpa was a pastor. I remember in the early days of church, being raised in the church, you would go and you'd find very few men. The church was run by ladies. There wasn't hardly any men out there. This is really a picture of the cross. Aren't you glad tonight men are finally gravitating to the right place? Servant leaders in the home. Guys, praise God. And if you're here tonight and you're a wife and you have a godly husband, you count yourself blessed tonight that they're here. Amen. I speak a lot to you guys that get on you, but praise God that you're here tonight. Thank God. Verse 41, In Galilee, these women had followed him and cared for his needs. And many other women who had come up from Jerusalem were also there. You can read back in the book of Luke, chapter 8, and I'll give you that for homework because of time's sake tonight. You'll see that they women were always playing an active role in the ministry of Jesus. They would accompany him on tour and minister to him and financially ministered to him and many other things. Verse 42. Now it was preparation day, that is the day before the Sabbath. 
So as the evening approached, now this is important. You remember Jesus died about 3 p.m. So the Sabbath started at 6, sundown. So if you're going to bury him, you had to bury him very fast. They had to go through all of this. So there was no work that could happen on the Sabbath. And also the Jews never wanted to leave a body overnight, exposed overnight. And it was very important, especially, that Jesus' body was taken down. Now, sometimes in those days, if nobody claimed the body, they would either take the body and throw it on the ground or just leave it there for the birds and for the jekylls and whatever animals to come and do that. Verse 43. Now, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council, probably we mean here by the Sanhedrin, who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate, and ask for Jesus' body. Now, where had this Joseph of Arimathea been? Remember the Sanhedrin voted to do what to Jesus? Crucify him. Had he spoken up? We don't know. Where had he been? Somehow, he was one of these people, we would probably say, a secret disciple of Jesus. He was a member of the Sanhedrin, probably certainly if he was there, didn't vote for Jesus to be crucified. We don't know that for a fact. But he was a secret disciple. What changed him to immediately now go boldly and ask Pilate for the body of Jesus? Now, knowing he was a member of the Sanhedrin, would there be any trouble with him going and asking boldly for the body of Jesus Christ from the other Sanhedrin members? Oh, there'd be some problems here. But why now? Somehow the cross had a tremendous effect on this guy. I don't know what it was, but the cross should have a great effect on us. Remember, Paul comes in 2 Corinthians, he says, I only come to you and I'm only just going to preach you the cross. Because the cross is the thing that has effect in people's life. If you watch Billy Graham, he loves to use the cross because the cross has power. The message of the cross just brings people to a place of submission in their life. So somehow the cross changed this, this secret disciple into a bold disciple. Maybe what he heard Jesus say, if that, that was given to him. Somehow he was bold enough to go now and ask for the body of Jesus. By the way, there's another Sanhedrin member that joins him. We don't find it here, but we find it in John. His name is Nicodemus. And you'll see him later in the book of John. So out of this, all the other disciples who are supposed to be here are gone. But we have these secret two guys, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. They come boldly. They take Jesus down from the cross openly. They carry him openly to his own tomb, not fearing anymore what anyone thinks. In verse 44. And Pilate was surprised to hear that Jesus was already dead. And summing the centurion, he asked him if Jesus had already died. Now, we know that Jesus gave up his life, so he shortened the time that normally it would take for crucifixion. Pilate had the centurion go, or it was the centurion that was there at guarding Jesus' body, we don't know who it is, who knew that Jesus had died. He said, I want to verify that Jesus has died. Now we have lots of theories about the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. One is the swoon theory, that he just swooned away. I was reading it this week, and here's one. It says, and I thought this was interesting, some Muslims claim that Jesus only swooned on the cross, then was revived in the tomb 
In other words, he wasn't dead. And he fled to Arabia where he preached years before he actually died. Now that's a pretty stretch, isn't it? The swoon theory, one of them. Pilate wanted to make sure Jesus was dead. So it destroys the swoon theory. Now, verse 45, when he learned that the centurion, when he learned from the centurion that it was so, in other words, that Jesus was dead, he hadn't swooned, he gave the body to Joseph. So Joseph brought some linen cloth, took down the body, wrapped it in linen, and placed it in a tomb, cut out of the rock. And then he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. So after Jesus' body was removed, it's probably washed as as they would do in those days, and they would wrap the body in these strips that we that we'll see when we study the resurrection with lots of myrrh and, and lots of aloe. Now this tomb was probably we don't know exactly which one it was, but there's many tombs when you go to Israel. You can see them many of the places where they're actually just a cave and and it's hewn out of rock and they take this huge stone and on an incline and, and roll it down so that it actually blocks the tomb, which is a very important thing. This flat, many men would have to come to, to roll this rock back up. Verse 47. This is another important verse. Interesting little verse that Mark is in. Now remember, Mark is getting this from, from Peter telling about the story. And Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joses saw where he was laid. Now why is that important? Here's another theory. There's another theory that says that everybody on resurrection morning went to the wrong tomb. And they went to the tomb. The tomb they went to was empty. And of course it was, Jesus wasn't there, so that's the reason that Jesus was resurrected, because they went to the wrong tomb. Notice what happens. These two women, notice, this is not two men. If it had been two men, <laughs> you remember, when God created Eve, why did he create Eve? Because he knew Adam couldn't find his way out of the garden, we told you that. He just couldn't find his way. Men can't find their way. If they got a map, they still can't find their way. So notice, this is not two men that followed Jesus to where he was buried. This is two women. See, we balanced it tonight, didn't we? Men and women. So they followed him there. And these two ladies knew directions. This is important because they watched from the background where Jesus was laid. Why is it important? Because the very next morning, what tomb did they go to? The tomb where they saw where Jesus was laid. Let's turn to Philippians. Let's just take a look at a verse as we end tonight. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 through 11. Your attitude should be the same as that of Jesus Christ, who being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, took on the very nature of a servant, and being made in human likeness, And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on the cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of the Father. That's how we should live. Jesus set the example for us. Today we heard a graphic description of what the human body would experience in crucifixion. But as Pastor Mark pointed out, this was the first time Jesus would be separated from his Father for a time. And that must have been excruciatingly painful. Jesus' body was taken down from the cross and taken by his friends 
to be put in a tomb. His example of how we should live on earth was finished for now. And he went. Pastor Mark will continue teaching through this series the next time you join us. For those of you that like to have CD archives of Bible teachings, we'd like to offer you a CD of Pastor Mark's message from today. Log on to LessonsForLivingRadio.com and select the Order a Message option from the main menu. The cost for each CD is $5. This is only to cover the materials and shipping it takes for you to receive your CD. Again, to place an order for a CD, simply log on to LessonsForLivingRadio.com and select the Order a Message option. Now, here's Josh with today's message number and title. Thanks. The message number from today's broadcast is MB3165, and the title of this message is The Agony of Love. Again, today's message number is MB3165, and the title of this message is The Agony of Love. Place a marker in your Bibles and join us next time here on Lessons for Living, as we'll hear about life after Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. Pastor Mark will speak about the disciples, specifically Peter, how after his denials of Jesus, he was most likely burdened with guilt and shame. But God's grace is greater than our sin, and Peter could have a new beginning, just like you and me. Jesus' death offers new life. We've run out of time today, but we do encourage you to tune in next time, as Pastor Mark will continue sharing with us from the Gospel of Mark. It's next time on Lessons for Living. 